Hello and welcome to UK and Changing Europe's All Singing All Dancing podcast, Brexit and Beyond. Today we welcome the celebrity power couple of British political science, Maria Sobolewska and Rob Ford, both of Manchester University. They're the authors of a new book, Brexit Land, which tries to take a long-term look at the polarisation of politics of which the Brexit vote is both a symptom and arguably also a cause. But as usual on Brexit and Beyond, we're also going to talk a little bit about how they both got into the academic game in the first place, the kind of stuff they did before this particular project, and uh, their views on communicating social science research to the wider public, which is something I know they take very seriously, and which, of course, is very much a part of the overall mission of UK in the changing Europe. So welcome, Rob. Welcome, Maria. Hello. Hello. So Maria, can you tell us a little bit about the work that you've done before this particular project and, and, and how in some senses that work may have kind of led up um, to this? So um, my interest in British politics started in the late 1990s uh, when I was a teenager. And one of the kind of big themes that started emerging around that time was the increasing influence of ethnic minority vote on British elections. And I think this was the first time when this was discussed as a mainstream issue. And it's really stayed with me. Um, so when I got asked by Anthony to apply for a PhD in Oxford, I did uh, write a proposal uh, trying to explain the, the, the block vote of ethnic minorities. And so this is how I started. And in, uh, in many ways, uh, even working on issues other than ethnic minority voting, I am carrying with me that uh, interest in ethnicity, race and diversity in politics. Mm, mm. Where do you think that comes from? I mean, it's interesting that it comes from, from someone from, from a, a country where, let's face it, ethnic diversity is not, not huge. It might be a huge issue, but it's not huge. Yeah, I mean, um, it, it is very hard to, to kind of post hoc rationalise mm. uh, things like that. I do think um, that are kind of dual influences. I remember uh, watching the news as a young kid, as you know, already my parents were uh, into politics and therefore I was always watching the news from when I can remember as a very small child. And one of the uh, most amazing memories of kind of political news, uh, apart from obviously the collapse of communism, which mm. happened when I was uh, also a, a young girl, I do remember Nelson Mandela being freed from, uh, from prison. And that's really made a huge impact on me. And then when I started reading about politics again as a teenager and started thinking about what I should do, I was very interested in the issues of race, but mm. actually curiously from the point of view of uh, theory, uh, political theory, uh, I was an avid reader of multiculturalism and Will Kimlicker and, mm. and all that. So I was, yeah, it is very hard to say why, but I was always extremely interested in this idea of accommodating difference. And I guess if I was hard pushed at how this relates to my experiences of Polish politics and Poland as a country. I do think the struggle against communism was very much in my family, certainly a struggle against this idea of uniformity of thought, mm. um, this kind of totalitarian closed mindset. Mm. And when you think about it, whatever the sources of difference of opinion and thought are, and they could be political, but they could be also cultural, historical, all of this kind of fits together in a sense that if you yeah. are a true believer in pluralism and in tolerance of, of difference, then all of this kind of fits together. Okay, Rob, um, what about you? Tell us a little bit about, you know, your work before this book. What's it, what's it really majored on? Well, um, it's over that fair, but with yours over the years, Tim, because I think both of us have written quite a lot about immigration and the radical right. 
And I kind of got started with that issue um, very early on. I, I, I mean, to, to give him his due, although I don't agree with everything he said since, David Goodhart played a bit of a role in that he wrote an essay called Too Diverse in Prospect. Mm basically said you know that, that, that mass immigration and rising diversity could have all sorts of profound consequences for European societies I thought, oh that's an interesting idea to dig into um, so when I was casting around for a PhD type project I decided to sort of look at racial attitudes in the majority population immigration attitudes and how they impact on politics and from the very outset what I was really struck by was two things which perhaps reflect the slight naivety of a middle-class kid from the suburbs learning about how the world really works uh, which was just how sort of widespread um, intolerant attitudes towards migrants and ethnic minorities really were and quite how profoundly they impacted on on politics. Uh, I remember starting with the 1960s British election study data and David Butler told me that, that people felt so intensely about Commonwealth immigration that they felt they had to add open-ended responses to those original surveys to give them the chance to get it off their chests. And when you looked at the numbers of the people who were coming it was like the, the there's just a huge disconnect between cause and effect seemingly because there were not many people coming and yet this reaction uh, was so powerful and so emotive and I thought well this is really a big puzzle that I'd like to understand more and I guess much of the past 15 plus odd years I've spent trying uh, to understand it a bit better. Mm, mm. I mean one of the things I think that um, marks out your work is that you, although you know some people would see you as you know someone who does a lot of quantitative political science, you've actually got a, a very good grip on and, and actually a real interest in the, the historical side of things as well. Would you say that's true? Oh, yeah, yeah. And I, I think that's as much my personal interest and orientation as it is my kind of uh, academic sort of discipline. I've, I've always um, been very interested in political history and, and read an awful lot of it. And my, my own personal view on kind of polling and public opinion research is that it should always be set in the context of the broader sort of stream of history that's going on. You can never, you can never really understand survey data in isolation from the society it's being taken from. Mm. And Maria, presumably you'd, you'd share that view, would you, that actually, you know, the, the kind of quantitative bias of political science does need occasionally to be kind of leavened by by kind of more qualitative work. Yes, although I, I'm not quite sure I would put it quite so starkly in a sense that this uh, kind of smacks of this simplification of quantitative work being quite um, lacking in reflection about mm. meaning and what it means. And I think that that is a mischaracterization in a sense that in my experience, most quantitative political scientists who use survey data do spend a lot of time worrying about what it might mean and how mm. can it be interpreted. So qualitative work, of course, is extremely important, but that kind of historical uh, understanding of the context of society is also very important for it. The kinds of discoveries that we've made actually when writing our book, uh, when using very old polling data from 1960s, was a very good example of this. So, for example, uh, before the 80s, really 90s, there was very little differentiation between race and immigration in the public opinion pollster's mind. And therefore, we can only assume to a good extent in the public mind as well. So a lot of the questions that we had to 
grapple with weren't differentiating between immigration from um, so-called predominantly white countries like Poland, for example, which mm. of course was very substantial, and countries of the old Commonwealth. And so when we think about quantitative data in that historical context, that is also telling us something very important about the society. Right. Well, we're going to come on um, to talking about your uh, book, Brexit Land, after we take a short break. But before we take that short break, I am going to ask you an incredibly cheeky question. Uh, You don't have to answer it, but we'd love your answer. Authoring uh, any book jointly with someone else can often be uh, well, how shall I say, a bit of a journey. But uh, you two are not only jointly authoring with each other, you're married to each other. Does that make it easier? Does that make it harder? Or does it make it both harder and easier? Rob? I, I think it makes it both harder and easier. Because on the one hand, I think you have a really good understanding of what your co-author thinks on a lot of issues, because we've been discussing these issues around the kitchen table for you know mm-hmm. over a decade. But on the other hand, it means you literally cannot escape the project because you 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 take it home with you um, because your co-author is there and certainly both of our kids were so relieved when (laughs) the thing went off because they were really fed up of hearing about it (laughs) okay maria same for you yes definitely there were were (laughs) challenges around working together but um I guess it was an ambitious and hard project, and I think it benefited from the fact that we were basically prisoners, each other's prisoners uh, for the duration, writing with somebody else who wouldn't have achieved what we have achieved, I think. We'll, We'll come on to talk about the book in a moment. We're just going to take a short break, and we'll be back very soon. Hello there. I'm Katie Hayward, Senior Fellow for UK and a Changing Europe, specialising in Northern Ireland and Brexit, based at Queen's University in Belfast. Apologies for interrupting, but seeing as you're here, I thought you might be interested in signing up to our newsletter, which is now weekly. You can keep up to speed by going to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk. See you there. Welcome back, everybody. Um, With us today, we have Maria Sobleska and Rob Ford, who are the authors of a new book, Brexit Land. And that's the book we are now going to be talking a little bit about. So, Rob... Uh, unfair of me to ask, but um, could you sum up the, the message of the book, the take home of the book in a few sentences for us? Really what we're trying to argue is that some very profound demographic changes are underway in British society at the moment, and they're introducing new divides into our politics, in particular divides by education and ethnicity, which for reasons both of external events and political parties' decisions have become mobilised into our political conflict uh, in a way that's kind of disrupted the traditional alignments of the political parties and produced all sorts of new and uh, complex effects, most sort of famously the Brexit referendum itself, but also big and long-running debate over the politics of immigration and uh, a long-running debate over the politics of independence in Scotland. And because those demographic changes are slow running, we think it's also likely that the kinds of political disruption and realignment they're producing is going to run for a a good number of years yet. So Maria, um, tell us a a little bit about some of those demographic changes that that Rob was was talking about. Which are the most significant um, for for the book anyway? So um, when we start our book, we are looking at 
at a society how it was in the 1960s. And we are showing in the book that it was a predominantly white society. There were already um, some ethnic minorities, non-white Britons in the country, because of course that has a very long history. However, the vast majority of British people would not have encountered very many non-white people. And it was a society uh, in which it was only the very small elite that ever went to university. So we are starting in single digits. And then over a single lifetime, what we end up with is Britain, in which we have uh, super diverse cities. Uh, some of British cities, we have uh, more non-English uh, speaking languages than um, people speaking English. We have London being... Uh, half of London is being of ethnic minority or non-white British origin. And in fact, uh, the most of the kids uh, today would have gone to school with non-white kids and also mixed ethnicity children. Um, but also in 2020, I think for the first time in the spring of 2020, we are reaching a point in which 50% of 18-year-olds would have applied to go to university. So we go from single digits uh, going to university to half of a cohort going to university. And these two uh, social changes are significant because of the kind of values, social values that these uh, changes have brought. And we focus in the book on a particular uh, one, which is ethnocentrism. Ethnocentrism sounds very uh, fancy, but basically it is how we think about us versus them, who we think us is, how narrow that group is, and how unlikely we are to let other people into it, and how we uh, consider them. Are we curious and open-minded towards them, or do we perceive them as a threat and are suspicious of them? One of the big issues around uh, those two changes, which kind of uh, doubles their effect, is also that they seem to be magnified both by the fact that they are uh, coming into Britain and into British society together, so they are generationally structured. Mm -hmm. So as we go, as we look at people who were born uh, in the 70s, in the 80s, in the 90s, their experiences on both these fronts are very different, but also we see geographical uh, concentration of these two changes. So we see that cities, for example, as I already mentioned, becoming super diverse, but also attracting a lot more graduate students and the small towns that are mostly remaining white are losing those young people who are going to universities. Mm. So there's an awful lot of change going on and there's a geographical element to it uh, as well. Rob, how does party politics fit into the story? Well, it fits into the story both uh, in the long term and the medium term and the short term. One, one thing we, we emphasise repeatedly during the book is that we don't consider parties to be sort of passive passengers in this demographic uh, change story. Um, they make choices which actively shape how these divides become mobilised into politics and the form that they take. So the first of those was the debate over immigration in the 1960s sparked by Enoch Powell's interventions. And the really important long-term consequence of that is fairly uniquely uh, in Western Europe, the Conservatives as a centre-right party became associated in the minds of ethnocentric voters, that's voters who found immigration to be a threatening phenomenon, uh, as a party of immigration control. If you look at the long-run polling from 1968 onwards all the way through until the coalition, voters were pretty uh, close to unanimous in agreeing that if, if either party was 
would go into control immigration, it would be the Conservative Party. That then aligned those ethnocentric voters with the Conservative Party, but also in the same period you see ethnic minority voters aligning with the Labour Party for the same reason, essentially, seen through another lens, which is that if the Conservatives are seen as the party that cater to the demands of voters who find migrants and ethnic minorities threatening, then they are a threat if you are a migrant or an ethnic minority voter and you'll vote for the opposition party who are better placed to protect you from that threat. Then if you flash forward to the coalition years, uh, one of the most remarkable and we think under-discussed elements of the coalition government is that David Cameron and Theresa May burnt through 40 years of accumulated advantage on the issue of immigration in less than two years by pledging to uh, impose a limit of tens of thousands on migration levels uh, and then utterly failing either to achieve that goal or abandon that goal or explain to voters why that goal was so difficult to achieve. So instead we got this what we call in the book a masochistic ritual where every single quarter new migration statistics would be published, all of the tabloids would talk about how the figures are massively above what was promised and then the government would apologise and say that they promised to do better next time, knowing full well that it was not possible to achieve that. Uh, that then leads to the emergence of Mr Farage, another party supply side story and he is very successful in linking the failure of that immigration control policy to Britain's membership of the European Union and that's the point where we then arrive at the great Brexit juncture but a lot of the important political and party decisions and reputational effects had occurred a long time before that referendum debate even got started. So in some ways that pledge by the Conservatives for the 2010 uh, election campaign, which was made almost by accident, is one of the great what-ifs, if you like, of British political history. Uh, had that pledge not been made, perhaps uh, the government would have would not have ended up you know in such trouble on immigration and maybe even the brexit referendum wouldn't have taken place it's quite possible yeah i mean there are there were other ways they could have signaled a desire to control immigration without being so specific in a way that so repeatedly hurt them it was an extraordinarily stupid in retrospect way to frame the issue so i mean we, we had the brexit referendum and as you say uh, you know uh, a lot of the result in some ways can be understood by these you know, very long-term currents uh, that you talk about. But Maria, I mean, what evidence is there to suggest that the Brexit referendum and the result of that in and of itself has, has increased the polarisation um, that, you know, you've already identified was there? So what we um, say in the book is that the story of um, how those identity politics have been playing out in British politics has been quite uh, one-sided before the referendum. And I think this is illustrated uh, well by what Rob was saying about Enoch Powell, Conservatives, UKIP. All of this is mobilization on the right. All of this is mobilization of the people, of the voters who find immigration threatening and ethnic diversity threatening. What happened during the referendum is that because it was such a stark issue with two sides, the second, the other side has formulated itself in a way that uh, it wasn't aware of itself before that referendum. Mm. Um, so there was a lot of talk about anti-immigrant public opinion, but there wasn't any talk about pro-immigrant public opinion. Mm. As the issue became an issue of leave and remain, we have started focusing and discussing the remain side. And what we have found in the book is that the remain side is a very good counterweight to the uh, leave side. So they are much more comfortable with ethnic diversity, 
a lot of them are actually positively valuing diversity as a, as a social good. Uh, they are much more comfortable about immigration. And even if uh, some of them were unsure about the numbers at some point, they definitely would differ from the leave camp in terms of how they assess immigration's contribution to British society. And so the referendum therefore brings the polarization to light because instead of one side arguing and emerging, we now have two sides arguing with each other. And we show in the book that that might have very long-term consequences uh, because both these sides are talking not just about Brexit, but they are talking about all those longer term issues like ethnic diversity, like the kind of societies they value and want to live in. And what they are using in these debates is a set of social norms um, that they use in order to uh, discredit each other and to strengthen what they think is a normative uh, argument on their own side. I, I mean, how much role uh, do you give to, to the you know, changes in the media um, when it comes to that kind of polarization? I mean, is social media, as some people see it, you know, very much uh, a villain in this piece or, or is that really incidental? This would have happened anyway. It's not a question we're, we're well placed to answer with what we've done in our book. Um, I, we don't really do too much at social media. I mean, if I were to speculate, I would say social media can play a reinforcing role with regards to these identities once they emerge. Um, we will see that uh, on, in post-Brexit social media, that people will then form into their bubbles based on hashtag leave or hashtag remain and so on and that will then help to keep that identity in the forefront of their mind and give it like continuous meaning so I think it can have a bolstering effect but I don't think it is the primary mobilizer here. And um, we've talked about these long-term demographic changes, educational changes uh, and also changes um, to the ethnic composition of the UK. I mean they are still to some extent obviously going on uh, although there's probably a ceiling to the number of people who, who will go to university. Uh, does that mean that people, if you like, on the Remain side, on the multicultural side, on the cosmopolitan liberal side, does that mean in the end that uh, inevitably they're going to kind of win this argument just by sheer weight of numbers? So I am not sure whether we did um, end up uh, making this into a title of one of our subsections, but, but we did um, definitely make this point very strongly that we do not believe that demography is destiny. Mm -hmm. And this is why this is a very much uh, a book about social change and it's very much a book about public opinion. But this is why it's also such a uh, such a. a strongly focused on parties, on political parties book. This book definitely makes a strong argument that the political parties are met with all these uh, contextual opportunities like social change and people's opinions and people's identities. But then it is down to those parties to make politics out of that, uh, if you want. And so I think even though we now have this seemingly unstoppable rise of highly educated, diverse people mm. who are in this debate falling on one side of it, this is not the last debate in British politics. And this is not the last we have seen of the political parties. So no, short answer, no, demography is not destiny. Okay, and, and Rob, I guess a sort of final question to wrap it up, coming off the back of um, Maria's point there, does that mean that those um, Conservative Party politicians and people around the Conservative Party who say, you know, there's a, a future for the Conservative Party in some kind of culture war, some kind of war on woke, 
do they have a point there? Um, well, I mean, as, as Maria was saying, that these things are resources and opportunities, and then parties have to make choices about how they use them. There is an opportunity there for the Conservatives in the sense that we can see in, in other more divided, more polarised societies that it is certainly possible to further uh, kind of intensify the mobilisation of identity Conservative voters if they come to see the other side as, as a big threat. So th that is certainly possible, but it's not risk-free, uh, far from it. Um, because the danger if you intensify that kind of um, polarisation is that you then start to lose voters at the other end of the distribution. Uh, you know, you're more sort of traditional, uh, I want politics to go away type conservatives, two cars in the drive, pretty well off economically and just want taxes kept low and things run competently. And if you look at what happened, for example, in the US under Trump, and I'm not saying that the current conservative government is like the Trump government, there are many, many differences, but where have the Republicans lost uh, as a result of sort of amping up the culture war they've lost in um, wealthy suburbia amongst socially liberal graduates and it's uh, brought into play states like Texas and Georgia and Arizona that were in the past always thought to be absolutely safe uh, for the Republican parties. Similarly if you look at where the Liberal Democrats did best in 2019 there's already an early warning sign there in a great big c-shaped arc of seats all around the edge of London, not that ethnic diverse yet, but full of uh, well-off white university graduates. And you see huge increases in Liberal Democrat votes in many of those seats, suggesting many of those voters are already firing a warning shot and saying no thanks to that kind of policy. So yes, there are opportunities, but there are also risks. Great. Well, thank you very much to Maria and Rob. Uh, I just want to say that uh, I enjoyed the book hugely. It's got a fantastic historical perspective. Uh, it's also incredibly relevant both to contemporary politics and indeed the future of politics in, in this country. It's already had some great reviews in the newspapers. If you haven't already seen those, do go off and have a look at them and hopefully uh, both this podcast and uh, those reviews will encourage you to take a look at uh, Maria and Rob's book. So thank you very much to both of you. Thank you to all of those of you who are listening to this podcast. If you've enjoyed it, uh, you can find uh, our other podcasts wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, if you're interested in the work of UK in a changing Europe, uh, either on Brexit or all sorts of other issues, it's not our only focus, uh, do sign up for our newsletter. Do look out for us on Twitter and on Facebook and we'll be back with another podcast soon.